If you do have a Bible, please keep it open at Acts chapter 26. Um, even if it's on your phone, um, I reckon we should start handing out our Bibles again. That's just that's my opinion. <laughs> um, anyhow, please do have that open. That's where we're spending our time. I've got some slides that'll help us. My main idea is really simple today. Meeting Jesus changes everything. That's my big idea. If you've got a service sheet, you'll see a sermon outline in the middle of that. You can take some notes if you like. Uh, if you've got your Bible open, chapter 26, verse 16, Jesus says to Paul, I have appeared to you. Why? To appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. That's Paul's purpose. That's his commission. And with that, as it is for every disciple, Paul becomes a servant of and a witness to the Lord Jesus. Now, a couple of decades later, Paul is on trial for his life and he's still bearing witness to Jesus. Verse 24, you're out of your mind, Paul, Festus shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Short time or long. I beg your pardon, Agrippa says to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Short time or long, Paul replied, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me may become what I am, except for these chains. And with that, one of the most electrifying scenes of the New Testament comes to a close. As the prisoner, Paul, confronts the might of Rome, with the truth about God's risen king. Meeting Jesus has changed everything for Paul. Now, have we got any Barbara Streisand fans in the house? There's one bold soul. Everyone else is rightly keeping their hands down. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that, Kerry, but there are two thumbs up. Oh, who can argue? Um, it's rare, I think, that people get excited about a soil erosion project. But that all changed in 2003 with the California Coastal Research Project, something I'm sure you've all read in detail. A photographer was commissioned and released 12,000 images of the coastline in California. Um, so far, so good. However, one of the images, and you can see it here, was a mansion owned by Barbara Streisand. And Babs hit the roof. She slapped a $50 million lawsuit on the photographer to suppress the image. Unfortunately for Babs, things didn't go to plan. Before the lawsuit, this image had been downloaded a grand total of six times. And two of those were by her own legal team. After the lawsuit which she lost, by the way, the download rate in just one month following the verdict went from six to over 400,000, making this easily the most popular soil erosion project any government's ever undertaken. Lawyers now call this the Streisand effect. Using the law to suppress information only to dramatically increase your audience beyond any recognition. The Jewish leadership wants Paul silenced. 
They are sickened by him and his message about Jesus of Nazareth, the one Paul claims was dead but now is risen, the one Paul claims through whom you can have forgiveness of sins, peace with God and a welcome into God's family. For this testimony of resurrection hope through God's Messiah, according to the Jews, for this Paul must die. Ironically, though, by trying to silence Paul, they give him the biggest possible platform in the known world from which he will proclaim what? Jesus Christ is Lord of all, risen from the dead, put your trust in him and you'll receive eternal life. Meeting Jesus has changed everything for Paul. But before we get to the detail, I need to set the scene. Paul is accused of what? He's accused of being a troublemaker. That's the charge. And for that accusation, he now stands trial before Agrippa for the third time. So far, neither Governor Felix in chapter 24 nor Governor Festus in chapter 25 have been able to pin anything on him. Now, suddenly, after being held in prison for two years without conviction, imagine that, suddenly Paul is before King Agrippa. Now, who is King Agrippa? Well, he's a player in Roman politics. He had authority over what was northern Israel. And with Agrippa, things could go sideways for Paul very quickly. For starters, through his Jewish heritage, Agrippa was deeply connected to the Jewish community. And remember, they want Paul dead, so there's that. Worse, Agrippa's family is incredibly dodgy. Agrippa's grandfather was King Herod. We hear about him at Christmas time. He's the king who tried to kill Jesus by having all the boys under two years of age murdered. Agrippa's uncle killed John the Baptist. Agrippa's dad murdered the Apostle James. And just for something different, Agrippa is in a relationship with his sister Bernice. Are we okay with that? I mean, how do you reckon Paul's feeling about his chances now? And yet, by the end of this scene, it's actually not clear who's on trial. Oh, sure, Paul's the prisoner. He's the one in chains, but it'll be Agrippa who ends up in the hot seat. And so as we approach Paul's testimony, I want to work through four practical issues that I think will be helpful. Perhaps you can think of more. This is what I've come up with. You see, because if I'm right that every disciple is called by Jesus to be a servant and a witness then we need to ask ourselves, how can this testimony from Paul help us? You've got your outline, you'll see that firstly throughout this whole episode, Paul remains composed and polite. Secondly, Paul's testimony was personal. What Jesus has done in me. Thirdly, Paul's testimony was reasonable and verifiable. And then finally, Paul's testimony requires a response. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. So, firstly, at all times, Paul remains composed and polite. Look with me, chapter 25. I'm starting at verse 23. The next day, 
Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Uh, The word translated pomp here is fantasia, from which we get the English word fantasy. This is make-believe stuff here. Agrippa's entrance is theatrical, it's dramatic, it's completely over the top and he's living in his own world. Plus, in addition to the pomp of Agrippa, we have the high-ranking military officials. You can just imagine them, can't you? In their pristine uniforms, bristling with medals. Added to that, you've got the prominent people of the city, the rich, the powerful. And, of course, you have the governor, Festus. And while all these people come in with great pomp, did you notice Paul is brought in? We talk about witness intimidation. But meeting Jesus changes everything, doesn't it? So compare the pair. Do you think, do you think that Agrippa's pompous fantasy in any way intimidates Paul, who has met the, met the risen Lord Jesus in all his risen cosmic authority? Who do you think is most frightening here? I realise it can be hard, but next time you're nervous about standing up for Jesus, I want you to remember this scene because Jesus is easily the most terrifying person you'll meet in the Bible. Easily. And he stands with you just like he stood with Paul that day in Caesarea. And so confident of this, Paul remains composed and polite. Chapter 26, verse 2. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you, with your Jewish heritage, Agrippa, you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I wish some prominent Christians would take a leaf out of Paul's book here. Now, maybe it's just me, but I don't understand why any Christian would think it's helpful to be abrasive and argumentative towards outsiders. I just don't see the gain in that. You know, the vision of our church is to see people transformed by Jesus. Greg mentioned it before. But, you know, before we can bring people to God's word through some form of evangelism, we need to engage them first. And that's what Paul does here. Because there's no use being right if no one listens. And so Paul does what he can. Even if he thinks Agrippa doesn't deserve it, Paul is polite so that he might gain an audience. And the purpose of his audience is that he might have opportunity to witness to Jesus. Paul is polite. He's courteous. He's composed. And the second aspect of Paul's testimony I reckon we can learn from is the way he uses the power of personal experience. I really enjoy listening to people tell me how they became a follower of Jesus. How did that happen? What were the circumstances? 
But sometimes, and I think this is especially true when you've been raised by Christian parents, people can downplay their experience as if somehow their conversion was routine. Now, the circumstances surrounding Paul's conversion, they were dramatic. There's no argument about that. Here is a man who, by his own admission, chapter 26, verse 11, was obsessed with persecuting Christians. But now he stands trial proclaiming the very resurrection hope of the one he used to persecute. That's a dramatic transformation. I accept that. But even though the circumstances will differ, I reckon every conversion is remarkable. And let me show you why I say that. Do you remember the task that Jesus gave to Paul? Verse 17, chapter 26. I am sending you to them. That is, I'm sending you to the nations, Paul. I'm sending you outside of Israel. We have that fancy name for them, the Gentiles. That's what they're called. The people who aren't Jews. I'm sending you to them for what purpose? To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified, those who are being saved by faith in me. What does that mean? That means before meeting Jesus, all of us, what were we? By nature, we were blind, darkened and ruled over Satan. That's who we were. And here, as Paul describes his his experience, his experience of meeting Jesus, the the not-so-subtle message becomes, Agrippa, this is you. You're blind, darkened and ruled over by Satan. But you don't have to be. It's as if Paul is saying to Agrippa, listen, mate, if Jesus can save me, he can save you too. And so regardless of whether you think it's spectacular or not, every conversion demonstrates God's power to raise dead sinners to life. Every conversion. Drop that into conversation one time and see what happens. Paul was polite. Paul understood the power of personal testimony. Look what Jesus has done in me. And Paul's testimony was reasonable. Some of you will know one of the Sydney Morning Herald's most favourite contributors, Peter Fitzsimons. He said on Twitter, Atheism is a simple refusal to believe transparent nonsense without evidence. Atheism is a simple refusal to believe transparent nonsense without evidence. You probably know this, so forgive me for repeating it, but actually the word atheist began as an insult directed at Christians. Did you know that? Why so? Well, because Christians rejected the gods, but one. And so as an insult, people would call Christians atheists. That's where the word started. Now, I accept language changes. Anyhow, I think Peter Fitzsimon's attitude is probably representative of many Australians. But did you notice how he neatly sidesteps the available evidence concerning Jesus? When Paul claims that God's Messiah rose from the dead in fulfilment of the prophets, Festus calls him insane. Look at chapter 6, verse 25. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. 
The king's familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced none of this, that is everything that happened through the Lord Jesus, none of this has escaped his notice because it wasn't done in a corner. Paul's testimony is based on reason, verse 25. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And Paul's testimony is founded on public facts, verse 26. This wasn't done in a corner, Agrippa. Agrippa, you know the prophets. You know about Isaiah who promised a suffering servant who would bear away the sins of the world. You know the prophets, Agrippa, Psalm 16, that looks forward to God's risen king who will not see decay. And Agrippa, surely you remember what Jesus did. Do you remember, Agrippa, that time when Jesus was in that house so full you couldn't get inside and so those who brought their paralysed friend had to lower him through the roof? And do you remember, Agrippa, what Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, get up, take your mat and go home? Do you remember, Agrippa, that happened in front of everybody and they were astonished? Agrippa, surely you remember the reports of Jesus rising from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, how he appeared to over 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time. Agrippa, you know all this. And so Paul is not asking Agrippa to believe transparent nonsense without evidence. Come off it. And so the practical dimension I'm highlighting here is to remind you that despite the loud voices we hear in our community, your confidence in Jesus is based on solid ground. It's true, it's reasonable. Paul's testimony is based on factual evidence. This wasn't done in a corner. And that brings us to the crossroads because Paul's testimony demands a response. Everything Paul has said about God's Messiah suffering and rising from the dead, it corresponds with what God said would happen through the prophets. Everything Paul has said about Jesus fulfilling these promises was reasonable and publicly verifiable. And so the question becomes, Agrippa, verse 20, will you repent, that is, will you turn to God, that's just what the word means, And will you demonstrate your repentance, Agrippa, by your deeds? Think about it. I mean, if Agrippa really does believe the prophets, will he turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? Will Agrippa commit himself to living the life that matches his faith? That would be consistent, wouldn't it? I mean, anything else would be lip service, verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He'd fit right in on Macquarie Street, wouldn't he? It's the kind of slippery non-answer we expect from our politicians. But actually, the issue really isn't about Agrippa. I mean, he's the one in the hot seat, but actually, the question's about you. We've reached the sharp end of Paul's testimony and I think several practical questions now lie before us, not least, if you haven't, will you come out of the dark, receive Jesus as your saviour 
repent, turn back to God and receive from him the gift of eternal life. Will you do that? It's what Paul's asking Agrippa to do and anybody else who happens to be listening to his defence. If you haven't, will you do it? And if you have, may I ask, how are you going living out what you say you believe? Is your gratitude to Jesus, your saviour, being expressed through growing obedience to him? That would be consistent. Are you letting Jesus do his work of shaping you into the kind of disciple he calls you to be, one who will be a servant and a witness? That's what it is to be a disciple. Of course, Agrippa, he's dodged all of these questions. But did you notice how Paul moves from Agrippa to everybody else, verse 29, short time or long? I pray to God that not only you, Agrippa, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except, of course, for these chains. And with that, Paul elevates what might have seemed to us to be some kind of random biblical history. He elevates it to essential Christian instruction. He's laid out four ways that we can become servants and witnesses that Jesus calls us to be. Paul's been composed and polite under trial so that people might listen to his message about Jesus. He treats Agrippa with respect, even if he doesn't think he deserves it. Paul has realised the power of personal testimony. Look, Agrippa, what Jesus has done in me. What about you? Paul's encouraged us to remember that trusting Jesus is reasonable. None of this was done in a corner, not asking you to believe without evidence. That's a false claim. No, no. All of this is true and reasonable. What are you going to do with it, Agrippa? You say you believe the prophets. I know you do. And then finally, Paul has pushed us. Having met Jesus Today, through his word, Paul challenges us to respond with the kind of gratitude that is expressed through growing obedience. And Paul's done all this because, well, meeting Jesus changes everything. For Agrippa, I suspect he responded with unbelief. But I'm less interested in Agrippa, I'm more interested in you. You've met Jesus through his word today. How is he changing you? Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening today may become what I am, a servant and a witness. Let me pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your servant Paul. And as he imitated Christ, we pray that we might imitate him. We pray for a work of your spirit in our hearts that you would give us confidence to stand with Jesus, 
the wisdom to be polite to outsiders, and also the confidence to know that you really have broken into time and space and into human history. And through your death and resurrection, we can be your forgiven children. And so we do continue to pray that you'll transform us to be more like Jesus more and more. Father, would you hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.